morning.
take a deep breath of air into your lungs. Just breathe it in deep as we signal to our bodies that we're entering into this sacred space and sacred time. That we're together drawn into the presence of God by the love of God, the spirit of God that makes us um, part of this church. So let's just, um, let's just stand in silence for a few moments in God's presence as we begin. Lord, we give you thanks for the day, for this Sabbath day when we can sort of leave behind the rhythms of the week and just take a day to delight in our lives, delight in the goodness of being part of the family of God, part of your family. And um, so we come with gratitude, um, ready to hear from you and to try to catch a glimpse of you, our God. And we come from all kinds of different places, some of us feeling great and energized, and some of us feeling just worn out or beaten down or just sad or lonely. And we just, whatever we have, we bring it to you this morning, God, and we just ask for your help. We need you to help us with our lives. We need you to help us see how our lives can have meaning and matter to the world. And we struggle sometimes to see it. And so we come to pray and to sing, to read the scriptures together, to tell the old story of how you've been reaching out to us from the very beginning. And so we look to you this morning. We reach back this morning, hoping to see you, hoping to feel your presence in this place. So we ask you to come to us. We ask you to shake us awake, to, um, to bother us, to challenge us, to comfort us, whatever, whatever you need to do with us this morning, God. We, we open our hearts to you. So we ask you to, to stay with us during this time. We ask this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please join me in the call to worship from Psalm 37. Take from us the tension that makes peace impossible. Help us to know that you are with us. Take from us the fears that do not allow us to venture. Help us to know that we are in your care. Take from us the worries that blind our sight. 
help us to know that you are with us. Take from us the distress that hides your joy. Help us to know that we are in your care.
You can be seated. Today's reading is from the book of Leviticus. Please be seated. We may be here a while. <laughs> On the eighth day, Moses summoned Aaron, sorry, Aaron, and his sons and the elders of Israel. He said to Aaron, take a bull calf for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering without blemish and offer them before the Lord. And he said to the people of Israel, take a male goat for a sin offering, a calf and a lamb, yearlings without blemish for a burnt offering and an ox and a ram for an offering of well-being to sacrifice before the Lord and a grain offering mixed with oil. For today the Lord will appear before you. They brought what Moses commanded to the front of the tent of meeting, and the whole congregation drew near and stood before the Lord. And Moses said, This is the thing that your Lord has commanded you to do, so that the glory of the Lord may appear to you. Then Moses said to Aaron, Draw near to the altar and sacrifice your sin offering and your burnt offering, and make atonement for yourself and for the people, and sacrifice the offering of the people, and make atonement for them as the Lord has commanded." Aaron drew near to the altar and slaughtered the calf of the sin offering, which was for himself. The sons of Aaron presented the blood to him, and he dipped his finger in the blood and put it on the horns of the altar, and the rest of the blood he poured out at the base of the altar. But the fat, the kidneys, and the appendage of the liver from the sin offering he turned into smoke on the altar as the Lord commanded Moses, and the flesh and the skin he burned with fire outside the camp." Then he slaughtered the burnt offering. Aaron's sons brought him the blood, and he dashed it against all sides of the altar. And they brought him the burnt offering piece by piece and the head, which he turned into smoke on the altar. He washed the entrails and the legs, and with the burnt offering turned them into smoke on the altar. Next, he presented the people's offering. He took the goat of the sin offering that was for the people and slaughtered it, and presented it as a sin offering like the first one. He presented the burnt offering and sacrificed it according to regulation. He presented the grain offering, and taking a handful of it, he turned it into smoke on the altar in addition to the burnt offering of the morning. He slaughtered the ox and the ram as a sacrifice of well-being for the people. Aaron's sons brought him the blood which he dashed against all sides of the altar, and the fat of the ox and the ram the broad tail, the fat that covers the entrails, the two kidneys, and the fat of them, and the appendage of the liver. They first laid the fat on the breasts, and the fat was turned into smoke on the altar, and the breasts and the right thigh Aaron raised as an elevation offering before the Lord, as Moses had commanded. <laughs> Aaron lifted his hands towards the people and blessed them. And he came down after sacrificing the sin offering, the burnt offering, and the offering of well-being. Moses and Aaron entered the tent of meeting and then came out and blessed the people. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. Fire came out of the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. The word of the Lord. Please stand and continue worshiping with us.
come to the prayers of the people, we will begin this time with uh, silent confession. We invite you to spend the next few minutes in silence just praying and confessing to God. <clears throat> Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Lord, hear our prayer. For the church universal, we pray that you give us one mind to serve you and be led by your spirit to bring life and love to this hurting world. We pray for the church in this country that we would not be divided by denomination and politics. Lord, give us one mind to seek after you in the power of the Holy Spirit. We pray for redemption, Lord, that you would keep us close to you, seeking your face. We ask you to lead us in the mission that you have for us in this city and that we are a light to our neighbors. We lift up those among us this morning, Lord, who are sad or lonely or sick. Also, those who are not ready to voice their pain. Father, we lift up Melissa Hogue to you who broke her hip and the doctors are saying that she has months before she can put weight on it. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would be with her and comfort her, and we pray that you cut that time, Lord, that you would just heal her body. Father, this morning we'd also like to thank you for the safe delivery of Wilson a few weeks ago. We thank you for the blessing that he is not only to his parents but and his siblings, but also to us and everyone who meets him. Father, I'd like to thank you for this day. Uh, Kate and I have been married 46 years, and I thank you for this stage in our life. And I lift up marriages to you, Lord, and I pray that you keep that, that union grounded in you. I come against the spirit of pride that makes us be right. And I pray for a spirit of humility um, to put our spouses in you first. I pray, Lord, that you keep us present to you in our daily life uh, and always present to the people around us. We also pray that, Lord, that you would take our distractions away. Keep us aware of your spirit and how you want us to interact with the people that you put in our path each day. Help us to enter your presence and not be stuck. We lift up the wars around the world, Lord Jesus, and we pray for peace. Give us a heart of compassion and take away our hearts of stone. Lord, August always makes my stomach hurt with the anxiety of the thought of going back to school. And I thank you, Lord, that I am past that stage of my life. 
but we lift up all the students and teachers who are feeling anxious this morning. Give them peace and draw them near to you. We pray that our schools will be a place of learning and community and not a place of bullying and violence. Heal our land of this gross, um, disrespectful um, way that we treat one another. Please join me in the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Lord, hear our prayer and let our cries come to you. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. As we continue with worship, it comes to the part of worship uh, of giving. And uh, we are giving online now. So you can just go to our website and click on the Give button and follow the instructions. And you can rise and continue worshiping.
Now is the time where we usually bless and release our children, but since today is the fifth Sunday of the month, it's actually a family Sunday, which means everybody preschool and above will be invited to stay with us during the service today. Now we know that these little ones won't necessarily understand everything that's going on, but we here at Redemption feel like these are foundational experiences that help them build a sense of belonging and a part of our congregation. So even though it might be a little distracting, a little more noisy than we're used to, um, we just want to welcome all the age groups to worship together as one congregation and one body of God, even if it's a little bit of a noisy body. <laughs> Um, but whether you're home or with us today, if your children are near you, please put your arms around them and we'll bless them. Lord, we ask you to bless our children. We know that before they belong to us, they belong to you, and that we are helping them to steward their lives for your kingdom. Today, as they hear the scriptures and stories, we pray that they won't just be far off names and places, but that they'd catch a glimpse of you and your great love for all of us. More than anything, we pray that they would never know a single day that they don't feel a part of the people of God. So we bless them and ask you to bless them in Christ's name. And we pray as we always do that you would bind our hearts together as a church. Teach us to love each other and the world around us for your sake. Amen. Let's take a few minutes to bless one another.
started, real quick, I want to um, introduce our speaker today. Um, I want you to say hello. This is um, Christina Bond. Christina and Aaron have been part of our church about a year. Christina is a professor of Old Testament at Mid-American Nazarene. So let's give her a warm welcome, welcome as she shares with us today. Thank you. I think that makes me probably sound better than I actually am. Well, based on Tim's introduction, it might not surprise you that as a professor, I tend to get stuck in my own head. I am constantly thinking thoughts, and after a while I realize that my body's doing something that I didn't realize it was doing, I'm multitasking, and I'm lost. I went, my body went somewhere, I didn't realize that it went. I, I guess I kind of fit that absent-minded professor stereotype, but I actually get mad at that, that phrase, absent-minded, because I know exactly where my brain is. Problem is, I don't know where my body is, okay? I like to think I have a very rich inner world. Well, I didn't realize how, um, how absent-minded I guess I was or how much in my own world I was until last year when my bike route changed. I bike every single day to work, and part of my route is going through Ridgeview Road. And as you guys know, last year, it was under construction for an entire year, much to our collective dismay, right? They're putting in those two giant circles. So every week, it seemed like my bike route changed because depending on which road they were blocking off, I didn't know where I was going. And what I would do is I, my brain was so preoccupied with going one direction is I would go that way, and before I know it, I'm in this construction zone, and my bike is almost falling through the crevices into the inner core of the earth, right? And I would have to think really hard every single week about which way I needed to go. I realized that my body would go into autopilot is I would be thinking about something else, my body would take cues and would do the thing that not necessarily I needed it to do. I had to be very intentional. All of us have different habits and patterns that input the way that we live our lives, don't we? Some of those things are conscious decisions that we make, and a lot of those are unconscious decisions that we're not even aware of, like which way I'm going on my different bike route. We like to be in autopilot. Some of you may realize that you do this whenever you're driving to work. You're so used to that route that you aren't even um, mindful that you're braking when the person in front of you see the red lights. You aren't mindful that you're slowing down for the red light. You just automatically do it. And then when you reach a certain road, you're like, whoa, how did I get here? Right? By the way, public service announcement, if you are learning to drive, do not do this. Those teenagers here in the room, always be mindful where you're driving. It's very dangerous. Always do that, right? In public service announcement. Hey, some of the times maybe you're eating and all of a sudden you look down and your chips have disappeared and you aren't mindful about remembering where they actually went and you're suddenly blaming the dog or your spouse or your kids thinking, where did these chips go? Because you didn't remember doing it. We are all creatures of habit, some of them conscious, some of them unconscious. Maybe some of you, whenever you're here, you sit in the same row, the same seat every single time. Maybe you work out the same time of the day. Maybe you like a particular exercise equipment. But then there's also those unconscious decisions that we don't realize that we're making. Maybe we're in the middle of talking to a friend and we realize that we're multitasking without realizing it, and then we aren't really paying attention to what that person is saying anymore. Oh, it me. Yeah, that's me. <laughs> um, maybe you unconsciously reach for your phone whenever there's a lull in the conversation or you're waiting for the next appointment that you have. Maybe you um, realize that you don't like your neighbors very much, not realizing that it's because of their political signs they just recently put up in their yard. 
All of us have unconscious things that try to input who we are. And being the nerd that I am, okay, spoiler alert, being the nerd that I am, I started to research a little bit about why our bodies are preoccupied with going into autopilot. And I came across this study entitled The Unbearable Automicity of Being. Those of you who are looking for a band name, this is it. The Unbearable Automicity of Being. Hey, according to this study, our brains are always trying to go into low power mode. We are preoccupied about using the least mental energy so that we can dedicate that mental energy to bigger decisions and choices that we have to make. And so our brains are always looking for these patterns and habits so that can go to an autopilot and we don't have to do as much thinking, save that energy for later. Now, those of you who are in the medical professions or are teachers, last year you had to make a lot more decisions in the height of the pandemic than you ordinarily would have had to make, right? Maybe some of you realize that your mental energy felt like it was depleted at the end of every single day. That's because you're making more decisions. Your brain isn't going to autopilot, it's using more of that active energy. So according to the study, saying most of our lives are automatic that we are grossly influenced by our environments way more than we realize. We like to think that we're rational human beings, but a lot of times it's based on the stimuli, the input that we encounter in our different environments. And these, these um, lead into learned skills over time, that our bodies adapt and we just do things a certain way, or a um, pre-awareness or a pre-consciousness analysis where we immediately encode things in our bodies from our environments. We learn to respond to the stimuli, and we make patterns and habits based upon those different things. Not upon logic and reasoning, like me, myself, would like to think, but based on what our bodies want to do. Some recent studies, and friends, this terrifies me, some recent studies said that as much as 60% of our day is unconscious decision making. Now, I, that's a high, some said 40, some, the high end was 60%, so somewhere between 40 and 60% of your decisions you make, you don't even realize that you are making them. Challenge you, as you go throughout your week, see if you can figure out which ones you're doing consciously and which ones you might not be doing unconsciously. Very fascinating practice. This makes me uncomfortable. It really does. I like to think that I'm a logic, rational human being. In some ways, I am, right? But realizing that really I'm at the mercy of the environment in some ways that I am. The truth is, we all have an automicity of being. We are constantly being shaped and formed by the world around us. So what does this have to do with Leviticus? Thank you for asking, I would love to tell you. The tabernacle practices invite the Israelites into a new way of being. For the past few summers, we've been journeying through the Old Testament, Genesis and Exodus, and now we're here in Leviticus. And in Exodus, we saw this Exodus event, where the Israelites leave Egypt. But I want you to think about what it would have been like as an Israelite to have been formed in Egypt for hundreds of years. What would that have done to you? What are some of the conscious decisions, but more often the unconscious decisions that your bodies and your unconscious minds would have been making? The Egyptian empire would have dictated how you thought about yourself, how you thought about the world around you, what you thought the measure or the significance or meaning of life was. And as a result, you would have formed all these different habits and some conscious ways of being. This transition from being owned by the Egyptians to belonging by Yahweh would have been a dramatic jump. It's not just something that you land on overnight because you have all of these unconscious decisions and habits that are already being formed. Leviticus 
is the pause in the Old Testament narrative to reshape and reform the Israelites. It's an invitation into a new way of being according to the way that, the, that God views the world. Leviticus is counterformation. The tabernacle practices invite the Israelites to participate in a divine drama that interacts with the cosmological order. And by participating in these rituals, God's people would retrain themselves to become the people that God intended them to be. Now, we spent the last few weeks looking at the different sacrifices. And we looked at these different practices, these rituals that God commanded the Israelites to do. And unfortunately, in our Western, and especially our American context, we tend to look at these different rituals as being primitive or barbaric, even um, evolutionary inferior, don't we? Hey, that's part of our bias in thinking that these practices are primitive, that we don't understand that their purpose isn't something that is logical one-to-one correspondence. Because we are Western, we tend to view these different rituals as being analytical. Really what we need to do is view these practices as being what's called analogical. You hear the word analogy in analogical. Moving from analytical to analogical. These practices, these rituals, aren't a one-to-one correspondence that by doing this, there is this literal reality, this literal transference of my sin that is taking place. These practices are a symbolic ritual that engages the entire body, your entire consciousness, and is a way of reshaping and reforming who you are. Analogy, symbolic, analogical, it's a spiritual connection. And as I was trying to even think about the difference, I couldn't even put it into words. It's a spiritual connection. When you know it, you know it. But it's hard to point out. Um, For example, maybe this will help us understand a little bit better. Um, In the early Christian period with the early church, the early Christians had a practice, the Lord's Supper, where they would take the sacraments, the body, and the blood, and they would eat and they would drink it. And the Romans looked at this as being very analytical. Okay, the Romans said, this is, this is barbaric. Why would you eat somebody's flesh and their blood? That is absolutely disgusting. They're viewing it literally, right? However, the early church would say, no, this is a symbolic. And not just symbolic, but there is something meaningful happening here whenever we take these different ritual elements. We are saying that we want God to be so within us, so near to us, that we are symbolically feasting on him. It's hard to explain, but it's analogical. It is analogy for a spiritual reality. In fact, the very structure of Leviticus is designed to form us as readers in this analogical reality. Hey, it's a very structure. The shaping, as we read Leviticus, doesn't just happen in the message, but it also happens in the medium. The way that it's structured is a way of reorienting and reforming us. Let me show you. Um, Here is a, a diagram of the three different tier structures that we've seen throughout Genesis, Exodus, and now here in Leviticus. And yes, I did draw this. Please hold your applause. I don't have the fancy graphics that Tim here had. But we, we, um, when we looked at Genesis a few years ago, we looked at how the, the world, the cosmological order, structured into three different tiers. We saw this, the same thing that happened with Mount Sinai, was there's three different levels. If we were to even take the cosmological order a step further, we see that there's even three tiers that exist in heaven where the gods live. They're obsessed with these boundaries, these three different tiers. The tabernacle is structured into these three different realms as well, mirroring this cosmological order that God has created. 
And then last week, Tim showed us that the sacrifices themselves are even structured according to this tier, where the sacrifice is turned upside down to demonstrate this order of the cosmos that God has put into being. All of the structures are designed to shape us, to think about the world in which we live, the world in which God created. And let me go a little step further. The whole entire book of Leviticus also adheres to this three-tier structure. It is, as we read it, as we go through these three tiers, it is a way of informing us and shaping us. If you don't mind, go to the next slide. There was an anthropologist um, a while ago by the name of Mary Douglas. And Mary Douglas studies human civilizations. And as she was studying these, she realized that there were some, some commonalities between these tribes that she studied and the book of Leviticus. And what Mary Douglas proposed is that the book of Leviticus is structured so that it is a literary tour of the tabernacle. And here's what she, she proposes up here on the screen. On the left, this is the tabernacle. And then on the right is where she puts the chapters of Leviticus as it walks us through these rituals and practices that God's people would have been doing. So over here on the right, we have the first seven chapters. Those were the sacrificial system that we've been working through the last few weeks. Hey, these, over here on the right-hand side, those go past the giant fire pit, the altar, where the priests would have been sacrificing the animals. You see, we're walking by them as we're, we're going through the tour through the first seven chapters. Then something happens in chapters 8, 9, and 10. And this is where we're going to be at today, but we shift to a narrative. Now, notice that it's in front of the screen or the veil. This is the boundary marker where only, uh, only the priests are allowed to go even further. So this is right in front of the screen. And notice that it continues. <laughs> it continues around. We'll talk about that here in a second. But each portion of Leviticus corresponds to a part of the tabernacle where the rituals are taking place. He notice that you have the larger segment has to do with um, the largest portion of Leviticus. The second largest has to do with the holy place, the second portion. And then the smallest portion corresponds to the smallest square area of the tabernacle as well. Now, as they journey through the tabernacle, we realize that we get to this first screen, this first veil. Now, for us as readers, we have a shift to a narrative. And in fact, the two narratives actually take place in front of these two screens. There are two narratives in the book of Leviticus. And so Mary Douglas is saying that both of them go right in front of that barrier, that boundary marker where you're not supposed to go any further. This first one, chapters 8, 9, and 10, have to do with the priesthood. Okay, chapter 8 has to do with the priesthood having the ordination. Looks like they're, they're getting um, settled. They're ready to go about doing their rituals. And this is an indication to us as readers, not knowing what's coming next, that, oh, it looks like we're about to go into the next area, doesn't it? They go, yeah, the ordination of priests, the priests go into the next area, they do the rituals, it looks like that's what we're getting set up to do. And then in chapter 9, this long chapter that we read today, we see that God's glory appears. We're like, oh, this is great, we're about ready to go into the next section. But then we get to chapter 10, and then we realize the first obstacle in the book of Leviticus has taken place. I'm going to let Tim preach on it next week, it's fabulous. But really what happens is, um, two of Aaron's sons... Um, they're priests, and what the text tells, tells us is that they prayed with unauthorized fire. Now, we don't know what unauthorized fire means. It could be a number of things, but whatever happens is they are struck dead. The fire comes out, and it kills them. They're struck dead, and they're derived out of the community. They're like, ooh, I don't think we're ready to, to continue to the next level anymore, do we? And so, because we aren't ready to continue, then we need some more formation. 
We're not ready yet. And so the rest of the chapters continue through to the entrance and then up and away. The very structure of Leviticus is intended to shape and to form us. And today we're going to be taking a look at chapter 9 in particular, about this formation that is taking place. And I like to think, um, the way that the structure is working, I, I like to think of it kind of like Mario and Donkey Kong. Um, this, um, on this, this graphic here, maybe some of you will recognize this, some of you old schoolers. But you're trying to get to the top to rescue the princess, and this, this um, giant gorilla keeps throwing these things at you, and sometimes you have to go back and you have to start over. This is the kind of way that Leviticus is doing. Okay, we're trying to progress, we're trying to overcome these obstacles as readers, but sometimes we have to go back and we have to start over because we need more formation. Okay, this is a way to understand the book of Leviticus. Now, in our passage today, we are going to shift from learning to doing. Remember, this is the first narrative that we have in the book of Leviticus. We're shifting from learning about all the different sacrifices in chapters 1 through 7 to now we are going to do these sacrifices in chapter 9. And this is a big shift that happens in the book of Leviticus. So far, we just had instructions, not very much practice. But now the Israelites are going to do with their bodies, and something significant is going to happen. Everybody go ahead and turn with me. If you have your phones or a Bible available, go ahead and turn with me to Leviticus chapter 9. Let's go ahead and take a look at this passage today. You know, let's read it again. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Leviticus chapter 9. Okay, go ahead and pull that up. Okay, our story begins on the eighth day. And on this eighth day is, is a huge symbolic even day that's, that's being indicated to us as readers. Because we know that seven is the number of completion and perfection. God created the world in seven days. The tabernacle took seven days to, to build, right? But we're told this is the eighth day. So already we're anticipating that something really significant is going to happen. This is like super perfect. This is beyond perfect. Something significant is going to occur. This represents that the priesthood has been affirmed, which happened in chapter 8. And that we're going to move on to something very important that is taking place. Now, this day begins just like the previous days in Leviticus chapters 1 through 7, where God gives the priests instructions. You see this here in verse 1. On the eighth day, Moses summoned Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel. And he said to Aaron, take a bull calf for a purification offering and a ram for a burnt offering without blemish and offer them before the Lord. Sounds like the same type of instructions that we have already occurred. Hey, there's something that's a little bit different, though. Okay, Aaron is the one who is initiating these sacrifices. Remember, he has just been um, confirmed to be the high priest. Happened in chapter 8. And what, what Aaron does first is he takes a sacrifice for himself. Hey, look with me. Let's see. In, in verse 8, it says, Aaron drew near to the altar and slaughtered the calf of the purification offering, which was for himself. Now, this is an interesting detail here, friends. Let me geek out a little bit, okay? I apologize beforehand. This says that Aaron took a calf. Now, if we've been following very closely before, we remember that the purification offering for the priest was actually a bull. It wasn't a calf. Here we have a flip where this little detail is telling us that maybe this sacrifice connects with that moment when Aaron took the golden calf and made an idol of it. Now, Aaron is undoing that sin. 
He's, he's, he, instead of offering this bull for these others to worship, he is taking this calf and he is sacrificing it before God, saying, this is no longer mine. This is no longer who I am. And we have this indication that we're ready to move on to something else. Okay? Now, in addition to this strange sacrifice where Aaron offers this calf, we also see this other interesting detail. Okay? The whole Israelites, the whole congregation of Israelites are present, and they're going to be participating in this event. Prior, just the priests. Now it is all the people. And what we see here is that the reason is, if you look at me with me in verse 4, says, for today, the Lord, which is the personal name of Yahweh, will appear to you. Friends, this is significant. The Israelites have never had a close encounter with Yahweh before. Previously, it had always been from a distance. Okay, when they were at Mount Sinai, they had those boundary markers where you could only go so far to the base of the mountain, or you're going to be struck down dead. Only the priests, only the high priest, Moses, can go up further. Here it says, the Lord is going to appear to you. Where you are in front of the screen or in front of that boundary marker. You don't have to go any further, but God is going to come to you. You see, God's appearance isn't because the Israelites crossed the boundary from the mundane into the sacred. It's because God crosses the boundary from the sacred to the mundane. Because he wants to be with them. Yet the passage does tell us several times that the people draw near. Okay, look with me. It says in verse 8, Aaron drew near. In verse 7, Moses said to Aaron, draw near. Elsewhere it says the people draw near. There is this anticipation of drawing near to God, that his presence is going to be given to them. They are drawing near, and then the sacrifices that they are doing are also going to be drawing them near. Hey, a while ago, we had this Hebrew word that we learned, korbon, which means to draw near. This is the word for sacrifice. That even the intention of offering sacrifices is a way of drawing near to God. God is drawing near to the Israelites, but the Israelites are also drawing near to God in anticipation of what he was going to do. The Israelites are not doing these practices so that they earn the right to encounter God. And friends, I cannot emphasize this enough. We don't earn God's presence by becoming more holy or by doing practices or by doing all these different rituals. Um, if this were the case, well, then the Israelites wouldn't just screw up in chapter 10, right? They'd have reached a, a method of perfection, and then we would see in chapter 10 they would have done the fire correctly, right? This is not them trying to earn God's presence. A lot of times we make these sacrifices that the Israelites are doing as a means of legalism, Okay, this is often tends to be our kind of American Protestant perspective on these, that, well, the Israelites are doing these to earn God's presence or to earn God's merit. Ironically, the Israelites are actually doing these practices as a reminder that they need God's grace. Not because they think they can earn God's grace, but as a recognition that I can't do this by myself, that I need God's grace in my life to form and to shape me. Another indication that the Israelites are earning God's presence is demonstrated in verse 23. Look with me there. Verse 23, it says, Moses and Aaron entered the tent of meeting and then came out and blessed the people. This is a very strange detail where they're caught up in these rituals and all of a sudden they're going into this tent of meeting in order to have some sort of a conversation with Yahweh, right? What most scholars think is happening here is that, that Moses and Aaron are going into the tent of meeting to ask God to come. 
that there's no guarantee that even after they do these rituals that God is still going to come to them. They still have to ask. They have to go before God to say, we're ready. Are you still willing to come to us? See, holiness is not the end goal. Belonging to God is. Holiness is a means by which we belong with God. And God chooses to break the boundaries of that holiness order in order to come and belong with us. So the Israelites prepare themselves to see God. They engage in all the practices of a means of drawing near. And in response, God shows them his glory. Look with me, verses 22 through 24. I think we have it up here on the screen. Here's what happens. Aaron lifted his hands toward the people and blessed them. And he came down after sacrificing the purification offering, the burnt offering and the offering of well-being. Moses and Aaron entered the tent of meeting and then came out and blessed the people. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. Fire came out from the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat on the altar. And when the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. Let me teach you a Hebrew word today. Believe it or not, this is my favorite Hebrew word of all time. Anybody else have a favorite Hebrew word? No, just me? Okay, this is my favorite. Kavod. Everybody say that with me. Kavod. Don't you feel like you like, need to raise your glass and make a toast? Like, kavod, right? <laughs> it says kavod. This is the word that means glory. God says, my kavod will fill this place. Here we see that after these rituals take place, his kavod comes. This Hebrew word kavod is from a word, that, a verb that means to make heavy or to make weighty. A lot of times when we think of God's glory, we think of light, ethereal, graceful, gentle, right? Um, you think about those, those um, Renaissance paintings where you have this picture of God and his glory surrounding the angels and the people, and it's all these like bright paint strokes, light, delicate features. This is not kavod in the Old Testament. Kavod is deep in your gut. It is this weight, this, um, this deep sense that something significant is happening. Kavod. God gives them this kavod, and in response, fire comes out from that holy of holies. Can we go back to that diagram one more time? The diagram of that tabernacle. One more forward, I believe. Here we go. God's fire is in the Holy of Holies, which is uh, here on this chart in, in chapters 25, 26, and 27. This is where God's fire is. God's fire leaves this sacred space, comes out through the boundaries, and then lights the fire basin over here on the right side of the outer court into giant flames. This is not what any of the Israelites would have expected to happen. God belongs over there. That's where God's glory belongs, not over here in the mundane or the everyday ordinary. But yet, this is what God does. And this would have been mind-boggling for the Israelites because they would have understood that this, that is God's home. He doesn't belong outside of that. And in fact, in, in um, the ancient Near East, what you would do is in order to, to designate a sacred space as belonging to a God, you would have a tour of this sacred space. You'd have a tour of the tabernacles, what the Israelites would have anticipated what would needed to happen. Where in Mesopotamia, what they do is they would take an idol and they would walk this idol along the boundaries of the tabernacle. And they would walk it into the inner sanctum and then they would bring it to its, its ultimate home in this holy of holies. And this is where they would deposit it in this giant parade with this processional that would take place. 
In Leviticus, there's no tour for Yahweh. The tour is for us as readers, isn't it? It's because God doesn't need the tabernacle. God doesn't need the rituals. We are the ones who need the rituals. We are the ones who need the tabernacle. Those are designed for us to shape and to form us. They are not for God. God does not need them. He even broke through them, didn't he? God doesn't need the tour. We as readers do. And God doesn't need our rituals to show up. God was already there. And the Israelites didn't need to do anything about it. They just needed to be receptive. A lot of times we say that we want God to show up. Or we say, wow, God showed up really in a big way today, didn't he? And I'm not trying to um, be a nitpicky about that. But at the same time, God doesn't show up. God is already there. God doesn't need us to do something, some elaborate ritual by which he's going to do something. He's just sometimes a little bit hidden from us. And whenever we engage in these practices like the Israelites did, the hiddenness becomes seen. We're able to be attuned to the ways that God is present amongst us. I think it would have been easy for the Israelites in that moment to realize that God was there. I mean, they saw this blazing fire come out, right? You can't get any more dramatic than that. But would they have been able to see God's presence when there was no fire involved? What does kavod even look like? What does it feel like? Does it look the same in every situation? What if the Israelites needed those practices to prepare for God's presence because without them, they might not have even realized that God was even there. What if the practices made them more attuned to God's presence, that they could, when they're outside of the tabernacle, be able to see and experience God's presence when it maybe wasn't so explicit or overt, when there was no fire raining down from God's place? See, the tabernacle, the microcosm of the cosmos, is a small-scale representation of a training ground that the Israelites are using. By doing these rituals, by experiencing God's presence in this designated area, the Israelites are learning how to spot God's presence out in the wild, where it's maybe not as obvious to them, and it maybe seems a little bit more hidden to them. But if you don't train, if they don't train themselves to become attuned to God's presence, they're going to miss it in their everyday, ordinary living. And friends, the same is true for our practices today. The intentional practices that we do as a community following Christ are training grounds for recognizing God's presence out in the wild. Hey, every week we come here and we do these rituals, these very intentional practices together. We have time of silence. We have time of confession. We have a time of prayers of the people. We have a call to worship. These are all our rituals that are designed to help us to become attuned to God's presence here where it's a little bit easier. And these practices are designed that when we are out in the wild, in the wild everyday world where you're working and you're going to school and you're bearing children, in that area we become more attuned to God's presence by what we do here. Because every single day we're being formed. How how is our environment shaping our unbearable automicity of being? How are we being formed in ways that might be counterintuitive to the rituals that God has for God's people. I think all of us can think of ways that we're being formed consciously or unconsciously. We don't have to look any further than our pockets, do we, of the ways that that is training our brains. 
When I was writing the sermon, I realized that I kept wanting to open up tabs. <laughs> My brain like wanted to be distracted by other things. Or right? I was like, what is the, the, the um, most other things I can do besides actually writing this, right? Because my brain has been attuned to being distracted. And because my brain is trained that way, how am I going to be attuned to God's presence without being distracted too, right? That is something that is shaping and forming me. Our news cycles, our social media input, all of those things are training us about who's the enemy, who's in, who's out, what it means to have the good life, or what it means to have significance. The question isn't about whether we're being formed, because we most certainly are. The question is, what is forming us? And is this formation bringing us into further awareness of the holy and the sacred? So let me conclude with the quote that has have had profound impact on me and my personal faith. Um, Henry Nouwen is one of my favorite writers, and here's what he says up here on the screen. He says, we don't think our way into a new kind of living. We live our way into a new kind of thinking. What are some ways that we as a community following Christ can make ourselves more attuned to God's life-giving presence in the world we live in, not just by thinking, but also by doing? In a little bit, we're going to be taking communion. Communion is one of the intentional practices that we have where we do something intentional with our bodies as a way of reforming and reshaping us. This is something analogical, something significant that is happening to us. It's a means of God's grace by which we can encounter God's life-giving presence. So as we take communion today, think about how this practice might shape and form you and shape all of us as a community following Christ together. Let's pray together. God, we thank you that you love us so much that you don't let any boundaries stand in your way between us and you. God, we know that you've given us intentional things by which to become more attuned of your presence. God, even as we sit here today, can we get a sense of who you are and who you've called us to be and how you want us to see the world that we live in today? God, can this be training grounds by which we can encounter you and realize the great care and the great love that you have for us? Oh God, it's, it can be so easy to look at these practices and think that this is what saves us, but it doesn't. So God, we don't trust these practices as a means of salvation or a means of gaining your favor. But at the same time, God, we want to know who you are. We know that we are helpless without you, that we need your grace and your stability in our life. And so we ask that you would help us to spot you in the wild that we'd be attuned both to the ways that maybe you appear with fire and the weight of that kavod, the weight of your glory, but also maybe the simple, small ways that we sense you and the ways that you are shaping and forming us in the world today. God, we ask that you would make us more like your son, Jesus, that the things that are making us further from you, that we would be intentional and that we would see those things and that we would immediately get rid of them and that your grace would draw us into the fullness of who you are and the fullness of who you've called us to be. We love you so much, God. Amen. We're going to receive communion together now at this time. And if you're unsure how to do that, um, uh, usher-type 
folk will come down the rows and they'll just dismiss you out of your rows. You can come down front and the servers who are here will serve you communion and you, uh, they will say to you, remember the body and blood of Christ. You can respond with, I will remember or just amen. And of course, there's no barrier to, to taking communion here. If you call in the name of Christ, we welcome you at the table. First, we'll read um, from 2 Corinthians. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask you to bless this bread and this cup. May it be to us a spiritual food and drink, a means of your grace. And Father, as we receive it into, your, into our bodies, may we receive you once again. Come live inside us and make us new from the inside out and send us out into this world to be salt and light and the world, let the world feast on us and taste and see that you are good so that all may know your goodness. We pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Will you come?
announcements this morning. Uh, first of all, next weekend is a big weekend for us around here. It's a really special one. It's our promotion Sunday. And we make a big deal of when our children move up through their classes and such to mark them as kind of as a rite of passage. And so next weekend is promotion Sunday. If you have an incoming, a new kindergartner or a new fifth grader, um, they will want to be a part of this uh, service next weekend and the ceremony for them. If you haven't already, please go to our website and get them registered for that so we can plan accordingly. And also next Sunday, um, Mandy is having a short meeting after church on Sunday for um, this coming Sunday for um, her Strengthening Families program. If you're new to our church and you would like to learn about that, it's an opportunity to serve our community. We have um, families in need come in uh, every Thursday nights beginning in September, and we serve them a meal. They have classes that they're taught. It's just a really neat time to be a part of making a difference in a family who might be hurting or broken in some way um, to be a part of them there. So if you want more information on that, please plan to attend her meeting after church next Sunday. Um, okay, next thing, uh, Friday, August 12th is the Club 56 party you knew, that I'm reminding you of, 5th and 6th graders and outgoing 7th graders. You're all invited to be here that Friday night at 6 o'clock for your um, end of the summer party. And the last thing I have is on Tuesday the 16th, so a couple weeks from now, uh, Rabbi David 
Glickman will be joining us and he'll be talking about Leviticus. And so plan to come to that, you guys. It's seven o'clock that night here in this room and just to just drink in from someone who knows about the Old Testament and Leviticus. So that is all I have. Thanks, Beth. Yeah, yeah. No, it just keeps, you're right, it keeps getting better. There's me and then an Old Testament scholar and then an actual rabbi, so things are just ramping up. <laughs> hey, um, I have uh, just one quick announcement before we do our benediction, and that is for the last few years, one of our um, main worship leaders has been a high school student who is about to be a college student. And this is Jess Pittenger's last Sunday with us. So can we all stand up and give Jess a hand and thank her for all of the, all of the great music and worship leading. I can't look or I'll start crying. Yeah, okay, gotta, I gotta relax or I'm gonna sob, ugly cry. Yeah, man, um, Jess, your your ability blows me away. I can, you were a, I think a junior when you just like stepped in here. And were like, dang, who's the who's the girl with the pipes? She can sing, man. She just she has this blowtorch of a voice. It's it's been a joy to be led by you and worship. Keep singing, man. Um, go find your place in the church. We need you. And also, sneak home as much as you can. Tell us when you're coming. We'll let you sing. <laughs> Thanks. And then, um, Christina, if you would come back up. Hopefully you're still in here. We're going to say a blessing for you. Thank you for, for this. Is, we always do this. This is kind of probably where for you. Thank you for sharing with us. If you guys would just raise a hand toward her and a blessing. Let's pray a blessing on her. Lord, we thank you for Christina, all the studies she put in, and all the studies she's put in over the years in learning the, the Old Testament and just going way, way, way down the rabbit hole and um, digging into the Hebrew scriptures. And we're grateful that she came and taught us this morning. Um, we pray for the coming school year for both she and Aaron and um, their classes they'll be teaching, all the students, the lives they'll be impacting. We, we pray that you, you would just um, make everything that they put their hand to flourish. And we are so uh, grateful that she um, spent the time this week and prepared and, and walked us through these um, just some difficult twists here in Leviticus. So we ask you um, this day to bless our friend Christina and um, God to lead her forward in the work that she's doing um, this coming fall. And we're grateful for your spirit at work in this body. We love you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, everyone, go in peace. Have a great day.